We'll take your Bible and turn to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, while you're finding Genesis 12, I'd like to pray for us, pray for our time together in the Word and for our continued learning and understanding of what God has for us in the future. Let's pray together. Our Father, we delight in what theologians have called the doctrine of illumination. We delight to join the psalmist of Psalm 119 who prayed, Open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things in your law. We delight to join with the declaration of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 that spiritual things are revealed to spiritual people. That we have the mind of Christ. That we have a word from God with which to understand our God. And this evening in particular, Lord, as we examine Your promise to one man and how that promise has quite literally impacted our lives this very day. We ask You to bless our time in Your Word. We ask You to bless our understanding of the Word and to never treat the Bible as a, as a sentimental devotional, as some sort of just emotional charge for us but it contains the very story of redemption and you've given us a means to understand that story and i pray that tonight would help us toward that end all for the glory of our savior jesus christ amen i never would have thought this but the key to understanding the redemptive history of the bible can be found in an umbrella I didn't know that. I didn't know the umbrella was the key to everything until I was sitting in a seminary class with Old Testament professor Dr. Michael Grisanti. And he went to the whiteboard and in characteristic fashion, he just drew an umbrella. He was always drawing pictures. He drew an umbrella on the board. Needless to say, my curiosity was piqued. Under the umbrella, he listed... Some biblical covenants. He listed the Mosaic covenant. He listed the Davidic covenant. He listed the New Covenant. And then he gave what is essentially one of the keys to the whole Bible. He labeled the umbrella itself the Abrahamic covenant. And his simple but profound explanation was that the Abrahamic covenant is the umbrella under which the subsequent covenants all find their origin and which drive the rest of the covenants. I like to think of the biblical covenants, all of which are contained in the Old Testament, or in the case of the New Covenant, prophesied in the Old Testament. I like to think of them as the wheels upon which the redemptive plan of God rolls forward in His grand scheme. If you ignore the covenants, you rip the core out of the very story of the Scriptures, and you reduce the Bible really to a book of quaint sayings to be taken out of context, and, and I think that if I asked all of you who grew up in church or who have been in church for a long time, other than at Grace Bible Church, if I asked you the question, how many of you have ever heard a series on the covenants of the Bible, most of you would say that, that you haven't. Because particularly in the Old Testament, preaching on the Old Testament is so often reduced to just a, a moral story here and there that, that Abraham trusted God and we should trust God also. And while that little moral is true, there's infinitely more to it. 
covenants are mentioned in 27 out of the 39 Old Testament books, 11 out of the 27 New Testament books. On the other side of that, if you understand the basics of the biblical covenants, the storyline of the Bible now jumps off the pages. It, It absolutely becomes clear. And I can say this with great confidence. Every single verse in Scripture is related to one or more of the covenants. There isn't a single verse in our Bible, there isn't one word in our Bible that doesn't find its origin in a covenant. Now tonight I'm beginning our next mini-series in the larger series on the millennium. And tonight I'd like to begin examining the covenants because they relate to and they directly impact the coming millennium. And to be clear, the covenants of the Bible are not implied, they're not inferred, they're not hypothesized. The major covenants of the Bible have elements which are clearly definable, clearly seen. Each one of them has a pledge or an oath involved, an official time of ratifying the covenant, of signing on the dotted line, so to speak. Mostly this is God making a pledge, but in some covenants, His people are required to make a pledge as well. Each covenant has a sign or a symbol, and in each case, it's a repeatable sign or symbol. It's something that happens over and over again, to be a reminder of God's faithfulness to this covenant, to be a reminder of the covenant obligations that we have toward that covenant if you're under that covenant. Each covenant has witnesses. The most frequent witness is God himself, but there is a sense of of this being an official witnessing of a covenant. Each has consequences. There are positive and negative consequences, positive consequences for abiding by the terms of the covenant and negative consequences for rebelling against the terms of the covenant. So the covenants of the Bible aren't implied, they're not inferred, they're not hypothesized. And this is why we don't hold to the covenants of covenant theology, which would name other covenants, the covenant of redemption, covenant of works, and covenant of grace. But they're all implied covenants. They're not specified in Scripture with the details I just gave you. Now, just by way of reminder, I want to briefly walk through the major covenants of the Bible and just by, uh, to to be completely honest here, there is disagreement among even premillennial theologians about the number of covenants. But it's not primarily disagreements about whether a covenant exists or not. It's just disagreement as to how it should be categorized. Some are more conservative and would categorize a a covenant as really coming under another covenant. So it really doesn't make any difference. I'm going to list them all, but I will give you a note as to how a covenant might be related to another. But this is just to, to remind you. The very first official covenant made in the Bible, the Noahic covenant. God's covenant with Noah. The first covenant referenced in the Bible, Genesis 6, 18. I will establish my covenant with you. It's the largest in scope of all the covenants since it's a covenant with every living creature on earth that God would never again wipe out the the world with a flood. The sign of the covenant is the one that we all know that is the rainbow. The repeatable sign that we see when it rains. The Noahic covenant guarantees the regularity of the natural order that the world will continue with seasons and will be inhabitable until the end of redemptive history. You know why I don't worry about climate change? You know why I don't worry about global warming? Because the Noahic Covenant says I don't have to. That there will be the normal seasons. That we're not going to suddenly be living in a bubble with 180 degrees outside. That's not going to happen. Then you have the Abrahamic Covenant. God's covenant with Abram and then Abraham. 
This is the umbrella covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is the basis for the entire covenant program of God in redemptive history. The Abrahamic covenant basically made three major promises to Abraham. Each of them have some subcategories and nuances to them. But the basic three go like this. Land and nation. Those two go together. Land and nation. A specific part of the world is deeded to Abraham and he will have a nation to occupy it. The second promise would be seed or offspring. A people that will come from Abraham. And remember, this is made to a man who's childless at the time. And then the third element, the third promise, blessing, both personal and universal blessing. And so those are the general categories, land and nation, seed or offspring and blessing. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. This is a repeatable sign that all the males born to Abraham were to be circumcised as a sign that they also were recipients of the promises to Abraham. And, and this is why in the New Testament, Paul makes the argument that you must have an internal reality of faith that just simply being circumcised does not save you. It is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It is not a sign of salvation. And then you have the Mosaic covenant. I, I think this is a misnomer, but we're stuck with it probably until Christ returns. I prefer the Israelite covenant. Because this was not a covenant with Moses. This was a covenant with Moses as the intermediary. But it was a covenant with Israel. So I, I like the Israelite covenant. But we'll, we'll call it the Mosaic covenant as everyone else does. This was the covenant that God gave to Israel. Specifically setting them apart. Officially as his chosen nation. Exodus 19, 4-6 gives kind of the, the central core purpose. That they are to be a kingdom of priests. They are to be the light of God in this world. The covenant specifically taught them how they were to live in the land that had been promised to Abraham. The law as given as part of the Mosaic covenant was to show them how to live in the land promised to Israel. You see how the Mosaic covenant comes under the umbrella of the Abrahamic covenant already. The sign of the Mosaic covenant was the Sabbath. This is a repeatable sign every week. We are not under Sabbath law. Why? Because the Mosaic covenant had an expiration date. It was temporary. It expired at the cross of Christ. And therefore, the sign expired as well. Just a little hint, though. The sign of the Mosaic covenant will return during the millennium. And there will be Sabbath law once again. A glorious Sabbath law. Probably a lesser known covenant is called the priestly covenant. This is one of the more debated ones. Sometimes not included in the more conservative list of covenants. But the priestly covenant originates in Numbers 25. This is a covenant between God and the descendants of the priest Phineas, who stood for righteousness, who executed the wicked in the camp of Israel. Phineas had been jealous for God's holiness and he saved Israel from further punishment from their unfaithfulness, for their unfaithfulness. And so Phineas was rewarded. The covenant stipulates that Phineas will have his descendants serve in the temple of God and this will be fulfilled forever. Where does this begin? Ezekiel 40, 43, and 44 indicates that the descendants of Phineas, called the sons of Zadok, will serve in the millennial temple. And so that covenant will be fulfilled. Another lesser known covenant, the Palestinian covenant. This is not referring to the people that call themselves the Palestinians. It refers to the specific promises of God concerning the land promises to Abraham. So that's the name, the Palestinian covenant, referring to the land most often known as Palestine. 
Now, some don't put this covenant in the same category as others, and, and I will admit it's really more of a subtitle, subcategory under uh, the Abrahamic covenant. But there is some specific details to it. This covenant is contained in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. Deuteronomy 29.1 specifically calls this section a covenant with Israel. And that's why I would include it. But Deuteronomy 28 through 30 looks ahead to a future judgment and a future restoration of Israel with the culmination being the return to their land. Deuteronomy 30, beginning in verse 4, if those of you who are banished at the ends of the sky are at the ends of the sky, from there Yahweh your God will gather you and from there he will take you back and Yahweh your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your father's. The sign of the Palestinian covenant is also circumcision. And that connects it to the Abrahamic covenant. But Deuteronomy 36 says that the sign of the Palestinian covenant is circumcision of the heart. An internal change that will happen to those who receive the benefits of the Palestinian covenant. And now, of course, you see the overlap with the new covenant, right? You see this. It includes circumcision of the heart. The writing of God's law upon the heart through what the New Testament explains is the regeneration and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And then you have the Davidic covenant. God's covenant with David is given in 2 Samuel 7 that he, David, will always have a descendant on the throne of Israel, one who will rule Israel and one who will rule the world forever and ever. Now the sign of the Davidic covenant is more debated. Some say it's the temple which would be built by David's son. That's not really a repeatable sign though. I think there's more evidence to say that the sign of the Davidic covenant is the regularity of the sun and the moon and the stars being in the sky. Where do we get that? Well, Psalm 89, beginning in verse 35, this is God once again swearing to the Davidic covenant. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me, it shall be established forever like the moon. And here it is. And the witness in the sky is faithful. In other words, every time you see the moon still there, the sun is still there, the stars are still there. You remember that God will have a Davidic king on a throne in a city called Jerusalem on this earth. And then, of course, the one we're most familiar with and the one we live in, the new covenant. God's covenant with Israel is promised in Jeremiah 31 in which God will also graciously include Gentiles not as a replacement for Israel but as being graciously included in the salvation promises and blessings given to Israel. The new covenant is in Christ and Christ alone. It's based in the sacrifice on the cross and the repeatable sign of the new covenant is the Lord's table, the remembrance of the death of Christ. We partook in the sign of the new covenant this morning. And so that's just kind of an overview of the, of the covenants. But for our purposes concerning the millennium, I want to restrict this series to three covenants which have the most bearing on the millennium, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. Now, the priestly covenant and the Palestinian covenant, those are going to get a lot more attention in later miniseries because they're big also. They're big enough to have their own attention. And so in this little series over... Five or six weeks, we're going to do two messages on the Davidic covenant, including, by the way, how the episode of David and Goliath has implications for the coming millennium. 
We'll do two messages on the new covenant and the implications for the millennium. And tonight we'll cover the Abrahamic covenant. I, I don't think I'm going to get to all of it, but we'll do as much as we can. Why it speaks so importantly to a coming millennial kingdom. We're going to briefly walk through the major texts on the Abrahamic covenant. We'll do that tonight. I'm going to give you five musts concerning the Abrahamic covenant. And I'll get to one, maybe two tonight, and then we'll finish the rest next week. And then we'll return at the end of next week to one very seemingly random, unusual event around the formation of the Abrahamic covenant. And that is Abraham chasing a bunch of birds. And why is that in the Bible and why is it so important? I'm going to end with that and that'll give you something to think about. So let's start with, first of all, just walking through the major texts on the Abrahamic covenant. And you might say, what does this have to do with me? What it has to do with me is what we're going to see. And what I'm going to try to prove to you tonight and next week is that God makes a promise to one old man. He makes many promises and God must keep those promises in literal fashion. Otherwise, all the promises that you and I are counting on are debatable. That when God says to be absent from the body is to be with the Lord most of the time. Whoa, wait a minute. No, it has to be every time. I want you to see that you are seated here tonight with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because God made promises to a man named Abraham 4,000 years ago. And so this is our heritage. This is our history. But I just want to give you a broad overview. Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. And Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the introduction to the Abrahamic covenant. It's broad in nature. There's not a lot of detail. And again, we can basically divide the promises into three broad categories. Land and nation, those two are interwoven. Seed or offspring. And then blessing. Abraham has promised personal blessing. He's promised a a great name. He's promised that those who bless him will be blessed. Those who curse him will be cursed. He's promised that he'll be a blessing to all the nations. In the same chapter, God reaffirms the land promise. Verse 6 And Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. And now now the Canaanite was then in the land. Then Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, To your seed I will give this land. So he built an altar there to Yahweh who had appeared to him. Look at chapter 13, verse 14. Chapter 13, verse 14. God here will reaffirm the land promise again and the promise now of a massive number of descendants. Verse 14 of chapter 13. And Yahweh said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your seed forever. And I will make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your seed can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Go to Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, we have the official ratification of the covenant with Abraham. He's still Abram at this point. But this is the official signing on the dotted line. 
Genesis 15 contains this great statement of faith that salvation in God has always been by faith. Verse 6, Then he believed in Yahweh and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is justification by faith. It is the same way we're saved now. Abraham was saved. He was justified based on the sacrifice yet to be. We're saved, justified based on the sacrifice that already has been and that of Christ. And now... Abraham asks for assurance. He asks for confirmation. He asks for a ratification from the Lord. Essentially, he's saying, can we put this thing in writing? Can you make this certain in my heart? And God condescends to use a method that Abraham would be familiar with. Verse 7, this is God speaking. And he said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, oh, Lord Yahweh, how may I know that I will possess it? He's asking for assurance. And the following verses describe a ceremony in which Abraham, and he'd be familiar with this, takes several animals, he kills them, splits them in two, and then puts the parts down in a parallel line on the ground. Then God puts Abraham into a deep sleep. He promises him that his descendants will be enslaved. They'll be mistreated for 400 years, but afterward they'll come out as a great nation with wealth. They'll come into the land that God promised to Abraham. And the manifest presence of God, represented by what appeared to be a smoking oven and a flaming torch, passes through the animal pieces as a pledge of God's faithfulness. This essentially is a way of promising, may I, be become, may I become like these animals, split in two, slain, if I break my promise. God can't die, so he's going to keep his promise. And now God gives the very specific boundaries and the extent of the land deeded to Abraham's people. Verse 18 of chapter 15. On that day, Yahweh cut a covenant with Abram. That's where we get that phrase, cutting a covenant saying, to your seed I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the great Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Raphaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. This is exactly the land that's deeded. By the way, that's about five times more land than the current nation of Israel possesses. Now, you're noticing that every time God reaffirms his covenant with Abraham, he's adding more details. Turn to Genesis 17. In Genesis 17, God gives and commands the sign of circumcision, and here he changes Abram's name to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. Genesis 17, verse 6. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will go forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. Verse 8, And I will give to you and your seed after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, since Abraham still had no children, and he's an old man, he's 99 at this point, God now tells him how this nation will come to be. Verse 15 of chapter 17. Then God said to Abraham, As for your wife, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. 
Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a man be born to a, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a son? Turn to Genesis 22. We fast forward to, by the way, the answer is yes, she will bear a son. His name is Isaac. Chapter 22, we fast forward to, to Isaac, the miracle son of Abraham and Sarah as a young teenager. God now commands Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. What? Yes, to sacrifice him. Abraham is, is greatly grieved by this, but he obeys the Lord. And he takes the commanded journey with Isaac. He obeys the Lord even up to the point of getting ready to strike his own son on the altar. But the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, stops Abraham. And Abraham, having proven his fidelity and his loyalty to the Lord. Chapter 22, verse 15. Then the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this thing. And have not spared your son, your only one. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have listened to my voice. And of course, now you as a New Testament Christian, having the full revelation of the Bible, you're starting to get a little bit excited because you're starting to see something. Did you see this phrase? You have not spared your son, your one and only, your only son. And you hear echoes and shadows of Christ. The very place where Abraham was commanded to sacrifice Isaac, you could throw a rock a couple of times and hit the spot where the cross of Christ would be. It's right there. But now we get a new wrinkle. We get a new detail that the seed, the offspring of Abraham, is referred to in a plural sense. Verse 17, I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And his seed is referred to in a singular sense. Verse 17, and your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, a singular man. Paul confirms in Galatians 3.16 that this singular seed God promises to Abraham is Christ. Already we see the shadow of something Christ will do. Possess the land, rule the land by taking down the strongholds of his enemies. Are you starting to hear the millennium coming at us? Now, just to be very clear, Abraham would have no conception of any sort of spiritualization when God tells him, your seed, singular, will possess the gates of his enemies. Abraham has only one meaning in mind, that somebody who comes from my body will possess this land and rule over it. And that's what God promised him. Well, that's just a short overview. That's the Abrahamic covenant, and it saturates Scripture. I've broken down our thoughts into five musts, which have a major impact on our understanding of the coming millennial kingdom of Christ. The first must, the Abrahamic covenant must include ethnic Israel. It must include ethnic Israel. And we'll likely spend the rest of our time this evening on on this one must. 
The classic covenant theology argument says in one variation or another, basically that the promises of God made to Abraham, which originally included ethnic Israel, are now transferred to the church. They're transferred to the church because Israel rejected Christ, and so now it has nothing to do with ethnic Israel. Well, one of the ways to disprove this is to examine the term Israel itself. Here's the basic issue. The term Israel is never, all caps, never, N-E-V-E-R, ever, E-V-E-R, used of Gentiles. Ever. It's used of the godly remnant of all ages, Christian Jews. It's used of the future national entity anticipated through the scriptures. And in fact, if we were to break down the three major ways that Israel, as the seed of Abraham, is used, basically there's three different ways that it's used. The first one, the natural offspring of Abraham, limited mostly to the specific offspring of his grandson Jacob. That's the seed of Abraham. The second way it's used, the spiritual offspring of Abraham within the natural offspring. That's spiritual saved Jews. It's also used of the spiritual offspring of Abraham outside the natural offspring, Gentile believers in Christ. That's the term, that's the idea, seed of Abraham, but never are Gentiles called Israel. Now, I've already mentioned the one unique usage, the singular seed, which is Christ. I'm not including that one. But here's the amillennial position, the the position of those who believe that the kingdom is now, that the church is now the new Israel. Here's the position held by most in that theological camp. That God never made promises to the physical offspring of Abraham as a genetic people, as an ethnic people. That that was never the case. They would also say that the promises are given only to the spiritual offspring. And they would say... This one's a little hard to swallow. The Jews have no claim on the promises of Abraham because A, they're not the spiritual offspring and B, they can't prove that they're the physical offspring anyway. That the Jew can't actually prove that his DNA goes back 4,000 years. That's a classic amillennial view. But all of those miscalculations are answerable. First of all, to say that God never made promises to the physical offspring of Abraham It is a little bit ridiculous. How many times does he use seed and offspring? Seed and offspring. I don't know how many more times he could say this. If that doesn't indicate physical progeny, physical descendants, then it's just a metaphor that was misleading to Abraham. How would you like somebody to make a promise to you and you find out later that it was just a metaphor for something completely different? That's not a promise, is it? There's another way we could answer those those views. There's a huge emphasis in Genesis on the miraculous son of Abraham, Isaac. Why is there this emphasis if the only recipients to the promises of Abraham are are spiritual offspring? You can't get away from Genesis 17, 19 concerning Isaac. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his seed after him. If you get your Bible wet and wring it out, the word seed floods out of it. It's everywhere. God later made the same promise to Jacob in Genesis 28. He reiterated the particular promises to the physical descendants of Abraham, the possession of a land, great numbers of descendants in the land, and blessing on all the families of the earth. And yes, absolutely yes, 
Blessing is promised to those outside the physical offspring. And we praise the Lord for that, don't we? But the specific promises of land, of great numbers of descendants, of being a channel of blessing to Gentiles is only given to the physical descendants. And there's no way that Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob would have understood this any other way. Jacob didn't sit around with his sons saying, you know, God promised me this land, but what it really means is that your descendants are going to reject the Messiah and God's not going to keep that promise. No way. Now, some would say that these promises are all fulfilled in Christ as a Jew, but all the 12 tribes of Israel are considered the seed of Abraham and the seed of Jacob in particular. Christ, humanly speaking, only came from one tribe, from the tribe of Judah. And then this one is very concerning to me. What about the so-called inability of Jews to prove their physical heritage? That since somebody can't actually prove that they're Jewish, then how can they possibly uh, be in the land as a nation someday? That is an absolutely ignorant position that doesn't talk to Jews. You talk to Jews... They are very concerned with their DNA. They're very concerned with tracing their family heritage. Just do a Google search of the issue and it'll reveal all kinds of ways that Jews go about trying to establish their family heritage. But I don't even need that. The book of Revelation makes it very clear in, in Revelation 7 and Revelation 7, or 14 that God is keeping track. He lists 12,000 each from the 12 tribes of Israel. And this isn't a problem for sovereign God. You know what's so disappointing to me about that idea that since Jews can't necessarily trace their DNA, that there can't possibly be a nation in the future? What's disappointing about that is that that's the theological position of those who have been the greatest champions of the sovereignty of God over the last 500 years. That yes, God can certainly choose from the foundation of the world all who will be saved, but he can't track the DNA of a Jew. That's a weak argument that since Jews can't prove their physical heritage, which they would make argument against, that God can't transform them into a chosen nation once again. Here's my main point here. The terms Israel and Gentiles now continue to be used at the beginning of the church, at the age of, at, at Pentecost, And the terms are mutually exclusive. You can't substitute one for the other. I want to spend some time on this. Yes, Jews came into the church. That's a far cry from the eradication of the Jews as an official ethnic nation of God. Israel is referred to as an ethnic nation in the book of Acts. In chapter 3, one time. Chapter 4, two times. Chapter 5, three times. Chapter 21, one time. In Romans 10, verse 1, Paul wrote of his desire for the salvation of Israel, referring to unsaved Israel as them, a different group than the church. This is obviously a reference to Israel outside the church. And and the term Jew continued to be used with great specificity. 1 Corinthians 10, 32, Paul said, Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. A threefold division of mankind, Jews, Gentiles, and the church. Israel's unique place is is highlighted, is elevated in the New Testament. Romans 9, beginning in verse 3, Paul says, For I wish that I myself were accursed, 
separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's being extremely ethnic here. My kinsmen according to the flesh. Who are Israelites? And listen to the honor he gives them. To whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. These are unsaved Jews that he calls Israel. And it's clear that the institution of the church did not rob Israel as a genetic people of its special place of care and privilege before God. And some might say, well, what about Ephesians 2.15? Paul speaks of Jews and Gentiles as one new man. Aha! We're all one people now. No. It's not that Gentiles are all now recipients of the promises to Israel, but that now a completely new work of God has occurred in which Jew and Gentile, physical and spiritual descendants of Abraham and non-physical spiritual descendants of Abraham are all saved under the banner of Christ. But the phrase one new man simply means we're all saved through one cross, through one Savior. That's a far cry from the eradication of of the distinction between Jew and Gentile. Or let me put it to you this way. Paul said in Galatians 3.28 that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. He gives another distinction, neither male nor female. That under the banner of the cross we're all equal. Does that mean we have eradicated gender distinctions? Are we terribly wrong? Do the LGBTQ people all have it right? No, of course not. Turn with me to Romans 11. Romans 11, we're going to touch on it briefly. In later messages, we're going to pour a concrete foundation here. We'll be there long enough. I just want to briefly mention a couple of observations here in Romans 11. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. Romans 9, 10, and 11 are all about Israel. Romans 11, verse 11. Speaking of Israel, Paul says, I say then, did they stumble so as to fall? Meaning, to be eradicated as a people, to be eradicated as a nation. May it never be. Or some older English translations, God forbid. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. What does that mean? You remember that as the Jews rejected Christ, what did Jesus do? He turned to the Gentiles. That was the plan all along in the sovereign plan. He knew that was going to happen. But it was the mechanism by which God turned to Gentiles. And aren't you glad that he did? Verse 12, now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles... How much more will their fullness be? What does he mean here? The fall of Israel, spiritual blindness, brings blessing to the Gentiles. If that's the case, how much more the fullness, literally the fulfillment or the restoration, will be a blessing? What is this referring to? This is a reference to the millennium, the restoration of Israel. Verse 12 makes it logically impossible for the church to be the new Israel. Can't be. The future of Israel is clear. Look at verse 15. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be? But life from the dead. He pictures Israel as being resurrected from the dead. Verse 25. 
of chapter 11. For I do not want you, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There is an until, meaning a a set of conditions which is temporary. And verse 27, And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. If God has rejected Israel permanently, why is He promising here to take away their sins someday? There's also a distinction between spiritual Israel, saved Jews as a nation, and Gentile Christians. Let me just point this out to you. And again, we'll camp out here. Turn back to Romans 9. We'll, we'll do this in more detail another time. But Romans 9, verse 6. I want to point out a, a distinction. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. This is not just a contrast between those who receive the the promises to Abraham and those who don't. We need to be more precise than that. I'll give it a little more precision. The promises of Abraham are classified as belonging to Israel either according to the flesh, physical Israel, or Israel which enters into the spiritual promises by faith, which are also given to Gentile believers. Uh, Galatians 3 talks about this. And I've used this illustration before, that if you think of all of Israel, everyone ever born to Abraham as a, as a big circle, that is Israel. But the true Israel is the smaller circle inside spiritual Israel. But does God still have a, a care and a love at a, at a certain level of the big circle of all of Israel? He does. It's not a contrast between those who are excluded and those who are included. It's a contrast between those who inherit only the national promises and those who inherit the spiritual promises also. And I'll I'll explain this here in just a minute. The national promises are narrowed down to the descendants of Isaac in in verse 7. Through Isaac your seed will be named. Spiritual promises are given to those who believe Now, in this present time, national Israel is blinded. They're blinded spiritually, but this blindness will be lifted as individuals at this very moment. Any Jew who believes on the name of Christ, they're part of the election of grace, which Romans 11, 5 through 10 talks about. There's a sharp distinction here in verse 6 between Israelites who believe and Israelites who don't believe. Those who believe enjoy the current blessings of the church all are Israelites, but not all will enter the kingdom ultimately. Now, what, what's the distinction I'm trying to make here? Let me put it to you this way. If you ever watch the news and wonder who is supposed to occupy the land called Israel, non-saved Israelites today at this moment have a God-ordained, God-given right to occupy that land right now. They are physical Israel. They have a right to it. It's a 4,000-year-old deed of ownership. The saved Israelite will occupy the land of Israel in the coming kingdom and will then constitute the ultimate true Israel. What about this bombshell? Turn to Galatians chapter 6. There's one passage which the covenant theologian uses as the pillar of upon which to build the case that the church is the new Israel, that there will never be an ethnic nation of Israel. Galatians 6, 15 and 16. 
And I'll go ahead and just add the aha at the end. Galatians 6, 15, For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk in step with this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Aha! The church is the Israel of God. It says it right here. Covenant theologians point to this passage as the flagship proof that the church is specifically called the Israel of God. First of all, for me, I don't want to build an entire theology of the people of God on one verse. I'm uncomfortable with that. But is this the case? First of all, this would be in contradiction to the fact that everywhere else that the Bible uses the term Israel, it only speaks of the natural descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob every other time. Because of Galatians 6.16, many of our covenantal brothers use the term Israel and church interchangeably, but it's never appropriate to interpret the clearest passage of Scripture with the least clear. In fact, the opposite is what ought to happen with an historical, grammatical, literal hermeneutic. So is the church called Israel in this passage? Well, instead, this is a specific instance in which Jewish believers are distinguished from Gentile believers. Paul uses these opposing terms, circumcision and uncircumcision, Jew and Gentile. The and here in verse 16, it links the parts of the sentence that both Gentile and Jewish believers are on the same spiritual level. Verse 16, those who will walk in step with this rule. In other words, all believers, Gentiles and Jews are new creations in Christ. We all share that in common. And he says, peace and mercy be upon them. The totality of all the people saved under the banner of Christ, Jews and Gentiles, saved by grace, peace be upon them and upon the Israel of God. This is two groups. The totality of all who will ever be saved, Jew and Gentile, and the subcategory of all Jews who are saved by the grace of Christ, which Paul calls what? Israel, a nation. The passage does not say that the Israel of God and the new creation are identical if you simply diagram the sentence both in Greek or in English. Either one, you see that there are two groups, the big group and the subgroup. And Israel is not the church. It is a subgroup. There isn't one single passage in the New Testament which explicitly teaches that the church is the new Israel. In every case, the term is either used of national Israel still in unbelief or the believing remnant currently incorporated into the church and it never, ever erases the national promises to Israel as the nation of the future. And we may as well deal with one more elephant in the room. Turn to Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, I'm trying to hit some of the so-called proof passages that Israel has done in God's plan. This is taken as proof that God is finished with Israel. Jesus tells a parable of a vineyard. He tells a couple of parables, but I'll focus on the parable of the vineyard in particular. The vineyard owner rented the vineyard out to tenant farmers. And when the vineyard owner sent his slaves to collect his share of the harvest, the tenant farmers beat the slaves. And it happened again. And finally, the vineyard owner sent his son, and the farmers killed him. 
Now, obviously, Jesus applies this parable prophetically to himself. He predicts his own rejection, predicts his own death. Now, the big ending, which is taken by many as proof that God is now done with Israel because of the death of Christ, occurs in verse 43. Matthew 21, 43. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. Is that saying that God is now done with Israel? The kingdom of God is taken away from them. There's a couple of major flaws to that argument. First of all, Jesus says that the kingdom of God will be given to a nation. And this is taken as the church. But the church is never called a nation in the New Testament. We're called lots of things. We're called the body of Christ. We're called the bride of Christ. But we're never called a nation. A nation has borders, lands, governing authorities, even armies. We don't have any of those things. Now, if you know your Bible, you might be saying, but Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9 that you are a holy nation. All right, who's he talking to? Peter was quoting Exodus 19.6 of Israel and the opening of Peter's letter tells us who he's writing to. 1 Peter 1.1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as exiles scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen. Exiles and scattered, those are distinctly Jewish ideas. Scattered is translated in other English versions with a capitalized word, the dispersion, the Greek word diaspora. This is a very specific reference to Jews driven from their land. And so once you take that one reference in 1 Peter 2 out, the church is never specifically referred to with any clarity as a nation. So that's the first problem with seeing Matthew 21, 43 as the church being this nation. The second flaw in the argument is that Jesus is not saying that the kingdom of God will be taken from Israel. He's not saying that. Who's he talking to? Look back at verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Who's he speaking to? The chief priests and the elders of the people. Skip ahead to verse 45, second to last verse. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. That they will not enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom is taken away from them. The kingdom is taken away from all who will not bend the knee to the Son of God and will not receive Him. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they were the spiritual leaders of Israel and the nation would be taken from them and given to another nation. What nation is that? The nation that will, re- that will replace them is still Israel. A saved Israel though, now with righteous leaders. Who are those righteous leaders going to be? Jesus told the apostles in Matthew 19, 28, I say to you, truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, see also the millennial kingdom, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is not the kingdom taken from Israel. This is the opportunity to repent and be part of the kingdom taken from the scribes and the Pharisees. Even Paul himself appeals to the Abrahamic covenant to affirm his belief that ethnic Israel will be restored. 
Romans 11.1, 1, I say then, has God rejected his people? May it never be. God forbid. For I too am an Israelite, a seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. The unbelief of national Israel has never caused God to cast off his people entirely. And so the Abrahamic covenant, our first must, must include ethnic Israel. Well, I'm going to save our four other musts for next time. And, and you might be asking, so what? So what? I don't know about you, but I'm counting on a God who keeps promises. I'm counting on a God who can say what he means and he means what he says. I'm counting on a God who has told me in the Gospel of John, for example, that he will hold me in his hand until my very last breath. I'm counting on a God who has given us a Bible that says that to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord and that when I fall asleep in the Lord, I will be instantly with my Savior. I'm counting on a God who says that when he has forgiven all of my sins, he means 100% of them, every sin I've ever have committed, every will committed. I'm counting on a God who says that the resurrection of Christ proves that the payment for sin was complete. We're counting on a whole lot of promises to be true, aren't we? And so if God is willing to change his mind and to say, when I promised you, Abraham, a land and a nation and a seed and blessing, I didn't really mean it. The whole fabric of our faith tears apart. I'm counting on a God who can make a promise to one old man 4,000 years ago. And one of those promises is that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And who makes that promise come true because we're sitting here at the very ends of the earth, Bakersfield, California, having heard the gospel 4,000 years later because of God's promise to one old man. The Abrahamic covenant is still going And it won't be fully consummated until the millennial kingdom. When all the things that God promised Abraham will come true. That's the so what. We're all recipients of the Abrahamic covenant. It is the umbrella under which the new covenant in Christ. If if Isaac is not born. If Jacob is not born. If Judah is not born. If David is not born. Then you are not born again. So God has kept this plan rolling all through the Abrahamic covenant. I can hardly wait to meet Abraham. I want to shake his hand. I'm going to hug him. I'm going to say thank you for being faithful even though it was an unconditional covenant. What a hero of our faith. It's no wonder that he is the hero of multiple faiths on earth and we would all argue who loves him the most. But the so what is this. You can look at your Bible and see that God makes massive promises, keeps every one of them, and you can breathe, and you can know that when God promised heaven to you, he will keep that promise as well. He will keep it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this time, and we've really just kind of scratched the surface here. You are faithful. You are faithful. We count on your faithfulness. We have cast our entire future eternity on your faithfulness. We've cast ourselves on your mercy. That when you have said that if we follow after Christ, 
you will hold us all the way home. You have said that we will be overcomers. You have said that to be absent from the body is to be with the Lord. And based on your perfect record of keeping all of your promises, we believe you. And we look forward to all of your promises in the Bible to us, to national Israel, to the Gentiles, to the world, to the nations, all of them coming true and all glory going to you, our faithful God. We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.